All right, let's jump in. Hebrews 12 is where we're at today. We're going to be just dealing with 13 verses today. I feel a little bit like there's a little bit better ability to, to walk through them uh, this week than, than the last few weeks previous, but, but a little bit smaller, a little, little smaller chunk of verses, 1 through 13. Uh, as you're turning, getting settled there, let me just remind you of what's happening. So, so the author of Hebrews, has, has, he's finished his work to show the greatness of Jesus over and over and over again. He shows us the superiority of Jesus and the work that Jesus came to do. In contrast, he doesn't just say, hey, he's great. He shows us how great things, the great work of God through time. And then he says, but this is even greater. And he shows us and proves to us it's even greater. Then he turns and he says, okay, because this is true, you need to live like it. There's, there's a response to it, an expected and right response to it. And so we get into what's often referred to as the imperatives of the gospel. The good news is information that's brought to us. It's about transformation, changes our lives. But with it, as a response to it, there are expectations. There's responsibilities for those who walk in it. And that's where we're at in this letter. He has turned to the practical application components and the expectation, the response response is expected from those who believe it, who hold to it. And he's really set that up to this point with two perspectives, endurance and faith. And so, so I showed you this last week as we were starting, and I just wanted to do it again. In Hebrews 10.39, this is all the way back kind of at the summation of his intro to this section. He says, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so he's saying, we don't shrink back. We endure. We persevere. We're a people who keep keeping on. And we have faith. We trust the Lord. We trust him. We believe what he says. We believe he's good. We believe he has purpose. We believe that he is going to fulfill his promises. And and, and so last week when when we, we started into that, when we started seeing it, his focus was on faith, clearly on Faith. It was all about, in fact, uh, 40 verses about faith. So, so we saw that. We, we understood that. And, and now he turns, and he's, he's going to focus now on this second idea of preservation. Per, or not preservation, but per, persevering, enduring. And, and, and the call is really to endure in faith. So we set that up. This is where we're at. Let's read the verses. We'll pray, then we'll dig in. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from him or from sinners such hostility against himself. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not, more, shall we not much more be subject uh, to the father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and, your stre- and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let's pray. Father, just ask that you would meet us now, and your spirit would quicken our hearts and our minds, and just give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, minds to understand, and and Father, then a a deep and abiding desire to get up and go out of this room and, and live by what your word says. Help us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Reading these opening verses, it's difficult to, to, to read them and not, and not see the picture he's trying to paint, right? Like he's, he's kind of painting and building out a picture of runners running in a, in a stadium filled with people surrounded by this, this crowd. And it got me to thinking this week just how much I, I hate running. I just don't like it. And so when I was in the army, some of you have heard my stories about running in the army, and that's not the ones I'm going to tell this morning from the pulpit. If you've got questions about that, I'll, I'll tell you another day. But I didn't like it. I couldn't stand it. Uh, I found out when I joined the army just how much I didn't like it because they made me do it all the time. It's constant. Like you wake up and you, you go meet your, your platoon or your company or whatever the, was on the schedule for that day, and we'd go run. I just couldn't stand it. So, so most of the time, the vast majority of the time, out of my feelings about running, I, I would quit. I'd stop, walk, and I always made it back to the finish line. It's not like I, or the starting line. I'd always make it back to my car, but sometimes everybody else was gone, and I'm just strolling on in. That's not endurance, right? Like endurance is pushing on persevering. It's keeping the pace, right? It's, it's, it, 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 it's about running and not stopping running. My, even though your lungs are burning, your knees are hurting, your, your mind, I would end up in these arguments inside my head about how much I hated running. Why am I doing this so stupid? I'd say to myself, what do you think? Why do this? Nobody cares. You're, they're going to let you work on helicopters whether you run or not. Like, why keep running. So I wouldn't. I just couldn't help but think about that as I, as I started reading this this week and started recognizing that that lack of a desire to endure isn't just found in my life in running. But man, I'm so quick to find a way out when I face difficulty. Like just find the easy path. Find the, find the path that doesn't take a lot of work. I just want to walk for a minute. You just want to, but clearly he's calling us to endure. And I think that's really the, 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 the intent of these first, 13, these first 13 verses of chapter 12 is to call us to endure. Christian, live by faith in Jesus. Endure in faith in Jesus. And don't stop enduring in faith until you finish the race set before you. 
live by faith in Jesus, endure in faith in Jesus, and don't stop enduring in faith until you finish the race set before you. To this point in the letter, the author has, has given us four direct and strong even warnings about people who appear to put their faith in Jesus one day and then the very next day deny it. To say that they've trusted in Jesus and then not endure in it or to begin to drift away or to begin to, to, to return to the old covenant and depend upon the sacrifices, the blood of goats and bulls, to, to give way to that, new, that old lifestyle, to, to give in to the pursuit of things that are apart from him, that don't demonstrate faith on him, calls into question the very day that they placed or professed faith in him. And so over and over we've seen him warn. Don't drift away. Hold fast. Cling to this confession and profession of faith. Keep your eye on Jesus, he has told us. He has exhorted us over and over repeatedly in in response to these warnings. Do not lose focus. Don't let your eyes wander. Hold fast to this confession. He's calling us to persevere, to endure, to keep running, even though the things inside of us, the things surrounding us, and even the voices we hear might be, might be trying to convince us of how much it doesn't make sense to keep running. The question then, I think, how are we to do that? Now you think about this. This is not, this is not the, the call of the the call to the old, mature, been walking with the Lord a long time, right? This is not a call that he puts on just the most mature of us. This is written to every Christian, every Hebrew Christian that in, the, in the church that he's addressing. Every person that, that sat and received and read this letter. Now, by extension, every one of us are being the, given this call to endure, to run this race set with or run this race with endurance, run the race that's set before you with endurance. And, and, and here's the thing is, it's not a race that we want. It's not a race of our choosing. It's not a race of, of our design. It's the one that's set before us, just like Christ had a race set before him. He's calling every one of us to this. How? In a world where, where, where everyone, not everyone, the vast majority of people are running away from God? How, how are we supposed to figure out how to, how are we supposed to turn around and run against this flow? How are we supposed to endure when the pressure is against us? How are we supposed to endure in running to Him when everything around us is working against us and calling us to go, the, go, go with them? Well, He gives us four pointers, I think. Four, four things, four, four suggestions, four foundations, I guess. To help us do it. To show us how. And it starts in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin. Let us also do what they've done, right? So, so there is a way in which we're going to do what they've done and run. Let us run with endurance. The great cloud of witnesses that he's, run, that he's referring to are the Old Testament saints that we studied last week in Hebrews 11. We walked through, through the whole chapter uh, fairly quickly, but we saw, saw over and over these people representative of Christ and who were pointing their faith towards Christ. 
But there's struggle when we come to this passage because so, so many people look at this passage and they're like, huh, I, I think that means that there's these people cheering us on and looking at us and, and, and watching us. I think that's a misunderstanding. I, I think the point here that he's getting to in this first verse, the first point, the first how-to in, in the running the race with endurance is to remember those who remind us of God's faithfulness. Remember those who remind us of God's faithfulness. You see, these are witnesses that aren't, aren't, yeah, maybe they can see us. Maybe in some way there's this idea that they're observing us. Maybe that's kind of the illustration he's trying to paint out. But they aren't watching us simply so they can watch us because now we're the center stage. The word that's used is, is, is what, that's the word we get martyred from. These are people who are with their life bearing witness to something else. They are, the ones, they, they are the ones who we're supposed to look at, we're supposed to remember, because they remind us of God's faithfulness. If you remember the passage, over and over we came to the point where these people were believing with faith, they were trusting God to fulfill his promises, and not one of them, not one of them that are, are illustrated here had received the, the, they hadn't received the fulfillment of the promises, they were looking forward, they were looking into the future for the promises to be fulfilled. So here these Old Testament saints are, they're an encouragement to us. Because here we're called to run. And we may never, in this life, in this physical life, we may never grab hold or see the actual literal fulfillment of the promises that have been made. We may all die, everybody in this room may literally die, be laid in a grave, be eulogized by their friends, and then those tombstones. I don't know if you ever walked into an old, old graveyard with old, old tombstones. In it. The t- t- it may sit so long that the tombstones begin to fade because rain has washed across them so long. It may literally be that. I, that may be our story, but that doesn't diminish the faithfulness of God. And how do we know that? Because all we have to do is look back to these Old Testament saints. Remember these people who prove, who remind us, who, who, who encourage us to remember the faithfulness of God. So, so yes, they may be surrounding us. They may, in some illustrative uh, um, way, be, be able to observe us. But the intent is for us to observe them, to think back on them, to go back and remember who they were, what they endured, how their faith was on display, and how God's faithfulness was proved even after the fact, even after their death. You see, the, the reality is, is that as we look back, the point is not to look at them, but to look at them so that we can see in them God's faithfulness. Let me say it, say, say it a different way, just a slightly different way. A lot of times we, we read the Old Testament and we come across these stories and, and we think, I'm supposed to be like David. I'm supposed to be like Abraham. I'm supposed to be like Moses and Noah. Well, kind of. But you're not supposed to go build an ark in the front yard and wait for the rains to come and try to get a bunch of animals on it, right? We're not supposed to do the exact same thing. We're not supposed to climb up on a mountain and hope God meets us there and writes 10, ten words on, on stone tablets. We're not supposed, so, so, so not exactly like them, right? We're not all supposed to try to figure out how we're supposed to establish a kingdom and, and, and build a throne that we can sit on and say, oh, you know, God said he's going to have an eternal king. And like, Maybe that's me. That's not the call. 
We are supposed to in some way emulate their faithfulness or their, their faith to a faithful God. But it's God's faithfulness that's demonstrated over and over. And that especially becomes clear at the end of chapter 11 when you see his power working through their faith. And he comes to this place at the end of chapter 11. All these commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better. They hadn't received it. But God provided something better and he's given it to them. From the vantage point of these Hebrew Christians and even ours, some 2,000 years later, we can see what they couldn't. We have, a, we have history on our side. We have the unfolding work of redemption on our side. And as we look back at them, we can see them showing us the faithfulness of God, establishing promises and fulfilling promises in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, writes this, 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All these people, even though they didn't know exactly what Christ would be or how he would look or exactly what his mission would be, they were looking for God to fulfill his promises, and those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Christ. And so we look back to them, not just simply to see them and emulate emulate them and run like them and become them. We look back at them to see the faithfulness of God. And as I'll show you in just a minute, to actually see a representation and a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. These are a cloud of witnesses that bear witness and bear testimony of Jesus' life. And this is why I think one of, the, one of the phrases I'll pull out, we won't go back and walk all the way through that, that, that 40 verses, but just one phrase I'll pull out that, that proves this point, I think. It happens all the way back in Hebrews eleven four, 4, where it says, speaking of Abel, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Not to cheer you on and run your race, but to point you to Jesus and the fulfillment of God's promises, to bear witness to the faithfulness of God and his faithfulness, if we ever doubt it, is proven in his son, Jesus Christ, the one in whom all the promises of God are fulfilled. They are yes, and so we say amen. We can endure in trusting in God to fulfill his promises when we look at that long history of God being faithful to his people. And fulfilling his promises in Jesus Christ. So here we stand. And I know this is a slightly different set of circumstances than those in, in this, this Hebrew church. But here we stand in one way similar to them. God's promised that he'll send his son again. That he will return. In my estimation, it can't happen anytime. Too. I mean, it can't happen soon enough. Like, let's, let's go. But at the end of my life, when I'm laid in the grave, let's push forward a, a few hundred years. At the end of our lives, when, when we are laid in the grave and the rains have caused our tombstones to be smooth to where we are forgotten on the face of the earth, would somebody, just one person, be able to say there's a legacy they were faithful. They didn't receive the promises. They, ain't, they didn't see Jesus return, but they ran with endurance to the day they died. 
That's how we do it. Remember those that went before us. Not for them themselves, but for the faithful God that they, they show us. Second, in verses 2 and 3, keep, your eye, keep our eyes and minds fixed on Jesus. Keep our eyes and minds fixed on Jesus. Look at what he says. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, so let us run, let us endure, let us go looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I, we, we should have known, based on the, what he's already done through the rest of the letter, we should have known it wasn't going to take long for him to call us to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Consider him. Keep your eyes and your minds fixed on him. Look at his superiority. Look at his greatness. Look at him. And, and, and here's what's beautiful. This is the first time I've ever noticed this. I, I, I don't know how many times I've now read through Hebrews, not just counting since I was Christian, but having been working in this letter. I'm, I'm reading all the time in this, in this letter. And it, it just jumped out at me this week. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Every one of those statements, every one of those statements is connected. Now, I don't know if it's his intention, but it's hard for me to imagine. It's not his intention. It's just happenstance or coincidence. Every one of those statements is connected somewhere to the people in the hall of faith. He is greater than even they. This, been, this driving theme, this Jesus is greater, has happened all the way through. Let me just show you just how great he is, even compared to this great hollow witness, this great cloud of witnesses. In faith, Abel presents a, 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 a sacrifice, and it's acceptable to God. Cain's is not, Abel's is, because it happens in faith. Jesus is the sacrifice. You get that, right? Like, this is big. It's not, it's not his first fruits, and this stuff that he gathered, truly, there's nothing greater than he could offer than himself. In faith, Enoch was brought to be with God. Jesus enters the holy place and takes a seat at the, the right hand of the throne of God. He sits down right next to God. I'm guessing Enoch's not sitting that close, even though he's really close. By faith, Noah built an ark that saved his family. Jesus provides eternal salvation for all, for all God's people from all time for all time. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despite the shame, seated at the right hand of God. There's this picture. There's this picture of this, this, this Savior that's come. It's built out more fully in the, in the verses that follow, but, but I think it's there. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that completed it, brought it together, put it by faith, Abraham was given an inheritance. Jesus secures and provides our inheritance. By faith, Moses looked to eternal rewards for over earthly treasure. You remember that phrase that it, last week? He, he looks to eternal rewards. He looks beyond what he can have in Egypt. He, he doesn't identify as an Egyptian. He says, I'd rather suffer as an Israelite. He doesn't sit in Pharaoh's, king, or Pharaoh's uh, castle or whatever it is that he had. I don't know, palace, big tent. <laughs> I don't know. He's not willing to stay there. Jesus, looking to, to the joy ahead of him, endures the cross, despising his shame. Uh, these Old Testament saints, oh, they're, they're great. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. Remember them, because they remind us of the faithfulness of God. But even Jesus is greater. Look at him. Look at, look at his greatness, his superiority, in contrast to everyone who has gone before and everyone who has come after 
Look at his accomplishments. He is the founder and, and, and perfecter of our faith. He's initiated. He's pioneered it. There's a pathfinder uh, uh, pioneer kind of mentality here in that word. There's this way in which he goes first. He, he made a pathway for others to walk on. He, he blazed a trail. But he's the initiator. He's the author. He's the source. He's also the perfecter. He's the, the one who brought it to completion. So he didn't just say, hey, get up and walk on that path. I hope you find your way. He walked it first. And it says, now you come and follow me. You come after me. I'm the teacher. You're the student. I'm the master. He's the beginning and the end of our salvation. He is the the start and the finish. That's why it's so necessary for us to endure with our faith in him. There's no one else that can make this claim. Look, Look at him. Look at his superiority. Look at his accomplishment. Look at his sacrifice. He endured the cross. Before Jesus, people were just sacrificing animals. Slitting their throats and pouring out their blood. And he himself is the sacrifice. And on on, on the cross, simultaneously, the greatest evil and the greatest good occurs. So from one point of view, view, the, the Jewish leaders of the day, in cahoots with the Roman leaders, rid themselves of what is a very difficult person. He's just in their way. He's causing chaos. He's, people are going after him, threatening their way of life. But from another point of view, step back a little bit in an eternal point of view, they just killed their Messiah. They killed the very one they'd been waiting on. They killed God's only begotten son. And even that, from one point of view, would seem like a tragedy. Seem like a loss. Well, gosh, what do we do now? For the joy set before him. He knew that the only way to that joy was through that cross. That was the race set before him. That was what he had to endure. That's, that was the necessity. Look, look at the sacrifice. And look at his willingness willingness to walk towards that sacrifice. It wasn't all, wasn't all ra- ra- roses and rainbows. It wasn't all butterflies and bunnies, you know. I mean, this, it was a diff- difficult process. The, the night before he's arrested, he's, he's found in the garden pleading with his father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, yours be done. I'm not trying to paint a picture of a, a, a Savior that's afraid or unwilling to go. That's the only, the, that, that is the only conversation, the only indication that I know of. Now, I, I could be proven wrong about this. I don't think I am. But I, that is the only conversation, the only indication that I know of, that I believe the Bible ever demonstrates, that there was a, that there was a conversation or, or an interaction between Jesus and his father that we see Jesus literally and clearly in his physical form, have to submit his will. Not because he wanted something different, but because he was offering up and looking for, at least stating 
for an opportunity for something different. But the moment he steps up and comes up from prayer, he walks right to the cross. I think there's a beautiful example in that as we endure and face hardship is if there's another way, Father, if there's another way, if I can learn this lesson, if I can if I can see this growth in my life, if my faith can be strengthened in any other way, may it be so. But not my will, yours be done. So look at his greatness. Look at his, look at his accomplishments. Look at his sacrifice. And don't just look at it. Consider it. Look at verse 3. He says, consider him. <clears throat> Jesus is worthy of so much more than just a passing glance. Like, we've just spent some time considering these things. Like, think on them, process them, keep them in your mind first and foremost. And in the moment you you hit the hardship, look at Jesus, consider Jesus. Think about it, consider consider just what it was that he did. Consider what it was that he endured. Consider what it was, or, or who it was that he endured it from. These sinful people. Here's something, I'm learning this, I'm continuing to learn this, I've learned it, and I have to relearn it all the time. Typically, when we are loving one another, typically when we are loving one another, and it's a two-way street in loving one another, I'm not talking about uh, um, out-of-balance relationship, I'm talking about when the church gets it together and we're figuring out how to love one another and we're, we're doing okay, there's not a lot of stress and turmoil. Not a lot of pain from each other. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. Now, it'd be easy for me to just say, oh, you know, that's the Romans and the Jews. It'd be very easy for us to sit here 2,000 years later and suggest that we had nothing to do with that. Did he not die for your sin? Are you not part of the problem? Are you not? Are we? I, I'm, I'm, I'm here with you. Are we not part of the reason that he came to die? Consider what he's had to endure. Don't just look at him. Don't just glance at him every now and then. Consider, keep him in your mind. Consider what it is that he endured. Consider who he endured it from and consider why he endured. For the joy set before him. For the reconciliation, the restoration, the healing. Putting putting things that are out of socket into socket, right? Like making things right. So, so, so how, do we, how do we endure? We remember those who remind us of God's faithfulness. We keep our eyes and our minds fixed on Jesus. And we see hardship for what it is, not just what it appears to be. See what, see what hardship is, not just what it appears to be. When I was running, it just seemed like, it, I'm a helicopter mechanic. Why am I ever going to need to run? That's the thoughts going through my head. I fly places, and if we crash, I'm hiding places until someone can come and get me. I'm not running from anybody. (laughs) It just didn't make sense to me. 
here, here, here's the thing. From my perspective, it seemed like, ah, it doesn't make any sense, but there's a bigger perspective. There's a bigger reason for, for them to want soldiers to be healthy and able to run and endure. Right? There's a bigger reason than just running from an enemy. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes into training and, and being made ready to be at war. So I couldn't see that, like, like uh, the karate kid, I couldn't see. All I could see was the wax on and wax off. All, all I could see is the wash the car. All I could see is run. Come on, run. Why run? I couldn't see that there was something bigger there. But here the author of Hebrews points us to hardship in this way, and he says, look, have you forgotten? No, 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 no let's not even get there. Let's go to verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding blood. None of us, none of us have to shed our own blood for the forgiveness of our own sin. You see that? Man, we're so quick. As soon as that hardship, oh, gosh. And and trust me, I know. I I just received an email from a, a dear member of ours who it just seems like has been enduring. And it just seems like the waves of those storms have hit so hard so often for so long. Don't misunderstand what, what I'm intending here. But so often we're so quick to see that storm, that next storm, and think, oh gosh, this is so bad. It could be worse. We have none, none of us will ever shed our own blood for the forgiveness of our own sin. See it for what it is. See hardship for what it is. Verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, this is from Proverbs, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You are being treated as sons. We suffer as sons. As children of the God who said, let there be light. Of the God who sent his only begotten son so that he could adopt many more. Brothers and sisters, we are not an enemy. We are not the opposition. We are not objects of his wrath. We're children of a king, an eternal, divine king. We suffer as sons as we live by and endure in faith. He goes on, verse 7 It is for discipline that you have to endure. For God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them all. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good that we, should share, or that we may share in his holiness." Here's the beauty of this. It is so easy when we hit that, when that storm hits us, when we walk into the, to the, to the sheer winds and the blasting rains and the lightning and the thunder, and, and, and here we are in the midst of this next storm, and it is beating down on us. It is so easy to think 
Has he forgotten me? What did I do to deserve this? Did I mess something up? Like, did I get something wrong? Did I? Does he not love me? I wish that, I, I wish I could say this of our church. I wish I could say it honestly of, of the church. We are more like our children than we like to admit. And for those of you that are older than I am and more mature in your faith than I am, please hear me say that with great respect. But we're not the adults we think we are. And our life and our experience pales in comparison to the eternal nature, the eternal knowledge, and the perspective of our God in heaven. If when we were children, we understood, or even if we didn't understand, at least as adults began to understand why our parents disciplined us, isn't it high time that we began to understand what God is about doing and that we, each and every one of us, need discipline? We need training. We need equipping. We, mean, we need being made ready and made strong. And that's exactly what he's doing. That's exactly what he's doing. It says in verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He is purposefully and intentionally bringing hardship into our life. Well, what kind of hardship is this, Seth? What's the stuff he's bringing I don't know. There's, people disagree on this. Some people think that this is really written to people who are out there sharing their faith, who are actively finding ways to just stand in opposition to the world and prophesying and promoting this, this holy God, you know, like the, like the John the Baptist on the block. You know, they're, they're out there just preaching it and making everybody see their sin. And that person's going to suffer, and that's the I, I don't agree with that. I think that this passage falls in the midst of speaking to a general people who are being called to endure in life, living by faith. Endure in that faith. I I, I think what he's getting at is, generally speaking, as we live by faith, we are going to face circumstances that test that faith. So it could be something like a John the Baptist on the block preaching and proclaiming the gospel and getting eggs thrown at him. Or it could be the faithful, persevering, enduring believer comes home to a house being torn down by a tornado and being further required to trust in the goodness and grace of God. Is he not sovereign over all of those things? Is it not just as easy for him to make the winds blow as it is to spin up the hearts of sinful people that they attack his own. That's a picture from Revelation, actually, where the woman's sitting on the beast and the beast turns and eats the woman because it's by his purpose that that occurs. Revelation 18, towards the end, if you want to go look that up.
I think, generally speaking, this is us just enduring in faith. And whatever hardship is in front of us, He's purposed it. It's useful. It's good for what reason? To train us in righteousness. Or, or, or sorry, to, to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by this hardship and difficulty. This is why you're disciplined, so that you can endure. And just let's consider Jesus again. This is what we've been called to. Let's just consider Jesus again. Think back through the passage, or, or through the letter, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2.18, for because himself he has suffered when, when tempted, he is able, for because he himself has tempted, uh, oh, slow down, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 5, 8 through 10, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made per- perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If Jesus had to suffer to end up perfected, how in the world would we ever think we're going to make it to glory without being perfected through suffering. Jesus himself said this to his disciples, Matthew 10, 24 through 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? He's preparing his 12 to go out and, 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 and reap the suffering because of their connection with him. And if I suffered, won't you expect to be suffered is essentially what he's saying. You should be expecting to be suffering is what he's saying. Suffering for the Christian is always purposeful and it's always moving us to the place that Jesus has prepared for us. The founder and perfecter of our faith. This is why James writes in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's that's hard. Just, I'm with you. (laughs) That's tough. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know what that is? Steadfastness? Endurance. Oh. Wait a minute. i got to have it even to endure. (laughs) Keep going. This is a sermon for another day. (laughs) For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. I know every one of us want the perfect and complete. Like we know what that means, right? We know what it means. Perfect and complete, lacking, and we want that. This is the pathway to that. You will endure as his children with purpose and intention. Not because he's forgotten you or loved you less. This, this, this flies, in the fl- flies in the face of prosperity gospel and the junk that has invaded churches all around us. Just because you're Christian and just because your faith is strong and you are mature and you are standing fast doesn't mean you will never suffer anything. It doesn't mean that life won't be hard, that it will always be easy. He will bring these things to you because he loves you and longs for you 
to depend upon him and to trust in him, to endure in your faith in him. So how do we do it? We see, sorry, remember those who reminded us of God's faithfulness. Keep our eyes, our, our eyes and our minds fixed on Jesus and see hardship for what it is, not what it appears to be. Fourth, and finally, we set everything that hinders or gets in our way aside. Everything that hinders or gets in our way aside. And, and I'll show you that from 12.1, and then we're going to jump down to 12 and 13. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. You see it? Lay aside. Every weight and every sin. So just remember those two. Every weight and every sin which clings so closely. And let us run. Now let's jump down to verses 12 and 13. Therefore, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. What are you getting ready to do? Getting ready to run. You stand up. Shake it off. The stuff that's going to keep you from running. Get rid of it. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Right where the author begins in this call to endurance, he finishes in this passage. Get the junk out of the way. Get ready to run and run. Every weight. This could be a good thing that's become a God thing. It could be a morally neutral thing, but yet it still he- it hinders you. So, for example, I was at, a, at, at that Acts 29 um, assessment conference a couple weeks ago and sat down and started talking to a guy, and he starts talking to me about sports, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I used to watch a lot of football when I was a much younger man. Watch a lot of football, uh, go to Monday night football things and, and hang out with a bunch of fellas. And uh, when I, the first, I, my, my first ministry, the first ministry that I did was teaching in a small group at a, another church here in town. I was working a full-time job. I was single dad in it. I mean, I was, I was busy. My life was full. And I had to make a choice. Am I going to watch a lot of football? Or am I going to do the things that God called me to do and run with endurance? So, I don't talk to you about football, not because I don't like football or not because I think football's evil. It just was in my way. I had to get rid of something. I set it aside. I don't miss it now. Uh, you probably know that about me, but I, it, it, take it or leave it. So set aside every weight, anything that gets in the way. Every sin, obviously, this, these are the unacceptable things, right? So, so weights could be morally neutral. They could actually be good things that become God things. And once they become a God thing, they fall in this other category and they're sins. And you've got to get rid of them. You've got to set them aside. It's beautiful to me that he doesn't automatically mention that these sins destroy you and, and, and separate you. But they are keeping you from all that God intends and wants for you. Right? Jesus has dealt with your sin in the eternal sense. As he's done that, as the perfect, satisfying, sufficient sacrifice, your sin, you are forgiven. And yet, we need to set them aside so that we can run, so that they no longer entangle us or restrain us. We need to lift our hands and strengthen our, our weak knees. We, we, we aren't suffering needlessly. When we look out at the, we need, to, we need to bear up under these hardships and recognize them for what they are. We need to, we need to look at what our surroundings are and what our circumstances are and, and, and see what we have to be thankful for rather than what's condemning us. This, is, this has been something my wife actually said something to me about. It's been now probably about three months ago. 
we were in a conversation with someone else and, and she just gently said, you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like to me that you are so focused on what you don't have that you're not being thankful for what you do. And you have a lot. Now, she wasn't saying that to me, so it came across a whole lot easier. <laughs> but, man, that has spoke to me ever since. Have you ever thought, just listened to what we speak about in church and how we talk about things in church? I don't know if this is true of our church alone or if this is a, a kind of a natural tendency. Man, we're so quick to just talk about what we want rather than praise God for what we already have. And so we're, we're carrying these burdens and walking along and our, we just can't even hardly get ready to run. It's like a run. Oh, man, how am I going to run? This is, life is so difficult. <laughs> totally disregarding the fact that we have access to the God who has all power, all knowledge, is ever-present, never leaves, never forsakes, has made you his own child, adopted you into his family, and given you power and ability to endure. Let's stand up straight. Let's shake this stuff off. Let's hear Paul's words to the Philippian to, to think on what's right and good and beautiful. Let's keep our eyes on what we have and the promises of God. That's enduring in faith, right? Like that's, Let's do that. Let's make our way straight instead of running and zigzagging. Like they, we're not running from somebody shooting at us. Like that's, we're not trying to. The best path is the straight one. It's the one he made. Let's get on it and go. Oh, it seems like there's obstacles, but there's not really any obstacles because we're going to get where he's got us going. Make your way straight. Do the things, the right things. Live in obedience. Set aside the sins. Do the thing. If the, if the Bible says it, let's just strive to do it. It's not always easy. No, it's not. But it's always worth it. I've never met anyone who sought to pattern their life after the Bible that wished they hadn't. The whole point is, if your attention is being taken away from Jesus, man, get, that, get rid of that stuff. If it's, if it's hindering in, you, in, in any way, get rid of that stuff. Don't let it have the place that Jesus deserves anymore. Live by faith in Jesus. Endure in faith in Jesus. Don't stop enduring in faith in Jesus until you finish the race set before you. Those four pointers, they serve as the how-tos, but they also serve as the what do I endure in doing, right? Because that's really the next natural question. What am I supposed to do now? Okay, well, this is going to help me. Like, how do I get it done? What am I supposed to do now? Endure in these things. Next week, we're going to get into some very practical applications about how we begin to act and what we begin to actually do, like practice-wise. But before he ever gets to that place, this is beautiful to me, before he ever gets to the place of what we're supposed to do with our hands, he tells us how we're supposed to endure in our head and our heart with faith in the Christ that saved us. This is an internal work before it's ever an external work. That's what faith and repentance is all about. This is change of mind and a, a faith from your heart, right? Like there's this way in which this internal person, this internal transformation takes place. And so we endure in those things. We fight for those things. So in our head and heart, this is what we do. We endure in remembering those who remind us of God's faithfulness. 
Look back at the Old Testament and read those stories, not so that you can put pretty pictures of an ark with animals on your child's wall, which to me is kind of crazy when you think about it. It's judgment, condemnation, and, and destruction. And we paint these pretty pictures on our baby's walls. But look at them, not so that you can see these little stories, but so that you can see the faithfulness of God and so that you can see the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. Endure in remembering those who remind us of God's faithfulness. Endure in keeping our eyes and minds fixed on Jesus. Enduring in seeing difficulty for what it is and not what it appears to be. And endure in setting everything that hinders or gets in our way aside. This is not only how we do it, it's what we do. It's both. But it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. All the excuses... All the reasons we come up with. Because honestly, I don't think I've said anything new to anyone here today. I might have shown it to you from a place in Scripture that you hadn't thought about it from before. But I don't really think I've made some profound new discovery in what it is and how it is that we walk in the Christian life. As it's been said to me, what am I supposed to do? Read the Bible and pray more? Yeah, that might be the activity. But what's it taking your head and your heart to begin to read your Bible and pray more? But we make so many excuses. So many, I just don't, I just don't have time. I, I just, you know, there's so much going on in my life. If you knew the people that I work with or live with or that cause me problems, you would, you would understand. You know, I know what the Bible says about enduring, but, but really I want to be over here where I think it's going to be easier. I want to walk on my own path and do... I know, I know the Bible calls that sin, but, but you know, that's, come on, I mean, it doesn't really mean it. That's outdated and old, and it's no longer really relevant for us today, is it? Like, I, I mean, we finally figured out that it means something different than what the church has said it meant for 2,000 years, right? Like, we don't have to obey the Bible, come on, I mean, Really? So I, I just don't want you to get up, and I, I'm not trying to just encourage you tomorrow to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just start doing Christian stuff. That's not going to do you any good. It's not really going to do any good for the people around you because you're just going to be like me running, hating every minute of it and hating on the people who are making you do it. But I do want you to look at the God who saved you. I want you to fight hard to remember those that have gone before us, that the Bible has recorded and shown us God's faithfulness through them. I, I want you to remember hard and, and fight hard to keep Jesus in front of you, thinking on him, considering him. I, I want you to, to, to remember, regularly remember, regularly remind yourself, I have to do this. <laughs> Trust me, I have to do this. I'm with you. 
regularly remember that whatever difficulty you face, even if that season and the repetition and the, and the, and the closeness of those waves seems massive, I want you to remember we suffer as sons. We're his children. And I want you to remember, I just want you to fight to remember that there's probably things in your life that need to be set aside that aren't as important in this life as we would dream them to be. But they're keeping us from following Jesus. If we're loving them too much and not willing to get rid of them, that might be an indication it's time to get rid of them. And then, then, once you're settled there, start running and don't stop. Let's pray.